Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Minorities in Publishing podcast. For new and returning listeners, you may know you can find the podcast on Tumblr at minoritiesinpublishing.tumblr.com or on Twitter at Minorities in Pub, where there's also a pinned tweet that includes the newsletter, as well as any place you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Spotify. This is the ongoing summer of interviews for me, and I'm so happy to welcome another editor of color. Woo! We love that. (laughs) (laughs) We're here! Yay! Elizabeth Adjumine is here. And Elizabeth is an illustrator, printmaker, storyteller, and editor full-time, as mentioned. So she is a busy person, creator slash, well, I won't say gatekeeper because I know a lot of people have feelings. I have feelings about that term, but you are doing a lot, Elizabeth. And your book, Fibbed, F-I-B-B-E-D, came out earlier this summer, and it's just an adorable graphic novel. So congratulations. Thanks so much, Jen. Thank you so much for having me on this program. Very excited to be here. So we're also, we were talking a lot before I pressed record (laughs) about that dual creator slash full-time publishing person life. So I do want to talk to you as both because... I don't know how you feel if sometimes you're like, I'm one or the other, or you're both at all times. Yeah, I feel like it's definitely wearing many hats. And like, I think every part of my brain when it comes to like, whether I'm like creating something for myself or working with authors to like bring their stories to life, it's kind of like different pieces of the creative side. Um, Mm. So I think it's hard. It's it's not hard to separate them because it's like when I'm giving feedback on a project or helping shape a manuscript, that's a different brain than when I'm like thinking of ideas or like drawing something. But I think it's allowed me to like have a kind of full circle view of the process of bookmaking in a really nice way where it's like, I'm able to really appreciate the art and kind of appreciate the, all the work that I know that comes with both sides of both being a creator and author and also working with my team to help bring a book to life. That makes sense. And like you were saying Before I hit record, there's that insider info that can be super helpful in terms of, I don't know if it's fair to say, paring down expectations. (laughs) Yeah, unless you have none. But, you know, just be like, okay, I understand how this works. Yeah, I think it's like patience. Because I know publishing, people always say publishing is such a slow industry because so many things happen behind the scenes and you don't know what's going on. I think as an author, it's been super helpful to know how the industry works because it's like, I understand that even if I'm not actively seeing something that if I like email my editor asking about like marketing plans or whatever, I know they're having meetings to discuss like the book. How are they going to present my book? How are they going to pitch it? I think it's always great to communicate and ask questions because it's like, they don't know you have these questions unless you've communicated, you know, just because I have that background, every house works differently. So even if you have experience, every publisher does it differently. So it's definitely a learning experience, but also it's just been helpful to like set expectations and just be a little bit less stressed out. I think if I didn't have this background, I think it would, I just have so many questions. I'm just someone who always has questions. And like, the thing I feel like I can control is having information and having information is just what calms me down. So just knowing that, okay, things are being done. There's different stages into like when a book is launched and like when the publicity team is able to discuss a book and like make their plans and all that, those pieces, it's just nice knowing that there's a process that is in place. And you, just because there's silence doesn't mean things aren't happening. Say that again for the people in the back. (laughs) Because I feel like that's the, an author's worst nightmare, right? Is 
Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. telling me anything. Nothing's happening. And yeah, maybe that is true. I don't know. I know I'm always working. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm way wrong. Yeah. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I feel like as long as you just, just ask the questions, because I think some things authors don't think about, and it's, you kind of don't think of it as a creator because you're like, your project is so important to you. So like, that is fully the center of what you're doing. But I know publishing teams work on so many products that are also super important to them. And like every book that's acquired, obviously they were acquiring it because they care about the author, they care about the book and they care about making it do well. It's just like having that in the back of your head. Like it's like my editor is leading, I don't know how many other manuscripts at the same time and different stages with every author that she's working with. So just being calm about that and being a little bit understanding and just being able to be a little bit less stressed out knowing that I think has been really helpful. Yeah, I agree. And it's something I try to explain to authors I work with. And so Mm -hmm. I think it really helps as an editor to also be able to say that to authors and kind of emphasize your book is important to me. Mm -hmm. I will not Mm -hmm. be looking at it for a month because of X, Y, Z. I literally tell authors that I'd be Mm -hmm. like, Okay, so I'm usually not months late with edits. I mm-hmm. really try not to. I am a few weeks late, later than mm-hmm. I'd like with edits for one author. But I usually am very transparent of, I have to prepare for launch now. You will yeah. not hear from me for two weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> unless it is an emergency or unless it is in regards to launch. And I had to tell an author that today who missed the meeting. Like I was late to the meeting, admittedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had half an hour set aside mm-hmm. and... He was like halfway through. He's like, I gotta go. Um, oh, I was wow. Like, what? And so again, I was late. Even his agent was like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and now he's all, well, can we have, can we meet this week? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. When you come back from vacation, let's talk. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. It's just, everyone just needs to value each other's time. And it's like, sometimes things yeah. happen because meetings get scheduled on top of other meetings. So it's Absolutely. like, oh, I had to be here. Something that is urgent comes. So it's like being understanding, but also just knowing, like, I think people feel like unless like I have a meeting with like my full, you know, marketing team, like they're not doing anything. And that's not true. It's like, sometimes it's more helpful to just like have a good email and have that information. And everyone can be doing what they need to do. And it's just good to have that kind of understanding when it comes to making a book. And yeah, I think that's been helpful. I totally agree. Is that a t-shirt? This could have been an email. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I feel like it's hard to like, I think what's been helpful as an editor too, is just being communicative where I can be and just being like, Hey, this is my timeline. It might change. Just like being able to be open about that. One of the most stressful things is, you know, when you send an email, there's two things. It's, there's people who sometimes it's like I send an email to my editor and I'm like, oh, I would want a response now because I'm thinking about it now. But it's like, you know, email is made so that you don't have to respond immediately. And I think that's one thing that's changed a little bit. It's that people expect responses immediately instead of just like, you know, it'll take me two to three days or even doing something like confirming receipt can help make sure people understand like, hey, you know, I saw this, but, you know, I can't give you all the information now because I have to reach out to six people before I can have the information you need. God, yes. (laughs) What's the status? Uh (laughs) If it ain't edits, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. I don't. To me, as I've said, there's a new assistant on our Mm -hmm. team who started this week. And I just said to her, you will find that I am very, very transparent about everything. That is so great. And that's how I am. If you have questions, ask me. 
I don't love to repeat myself, but I will repeat myself. I don't like mm-hmm. things done fast. I like them done well. Here's my cell phone number. I am, I said probably eight times, contact me anytime. Do not hesitate. Do not be nervous. Do it. You have a concern, contact me. Because sometimes people just need to hear it more than once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, you're being nice. Like, no, no, no. Seriously. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do it. You know, I just hammer that home perhaps way too much. I don't know. I just feel like there's mm-hmm. no reason not to communicate. And as we talked about pre-record, the lack of communication just can produce so much. It can create miscommunication, non-communication. It creates so much more work, uh, frustrations, and just all these other things and anxiety. Yeah. And I also wonder, because even when I was writing my book, part of the story is that like um, the main character, Nana, she uh, uses storytelling to help save the magic in her village forest. Part of it is that there's this uh, group of like contractors, this corporation that's trying to like siphon the magic from the village and sell it for profit. Lack of information and hiding and like disinformation and also just like lack of awareness is I think something, a tool that's been used, whether it's like colonization, imperialism, by making sure communities don't understand what is happening behind the scenes, mm-hmm. you know, you're able to exploit them. And so like for Nana, she has to like tell the story of what's going on and find a way to communicate that with people who don't realize that our resources are being exploited. They're like, they said they're going to help build a new school when actually they're just like stealing the magic here and trying to sell it. And I feel like there's so many different ways that kind of mindset has been put in different institutions. So really dismantling that by just sending something that clarifying and just like helping people understand processes is just a great way to not do that and not have all of these other issues come up. Right. So speaking of that being kind of a through line or plot line of Fib, it is about a young girl, Nana, who is kind of accused of telling stories a bit too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a boy who cried wolf situation sometimes. Mm-hmm. It sounds yeah. like. At least that's how it proceeds, especially in the first pages when she's like telling the story and everyone's like, well, why did you just mind your business? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was definitely like her black parents because it's like she tells the principal she doesn't believe it, but her parents are like, oh, we know you're telling the truth, but sometimes you don't. And that's like two things. It's like sometimes you tell the truth and people know what you're saying is true, but they're like, we can't talk about this. This is something mm. that you should, you know, not highlight because it's putting you in a vulnerable situation. So that was kind of like the two pieces of like what Nana was going through. It's like in one space, I'm not heard. In another space, it's like I am heard, but I'm not validated in that way. So that's another part of communication. That's just like so many different pieces of like making sure people feel heard and understood and stuff like that. So was that kind of the kernel of what created Fibbed? Or was it really you saw Nana first and wanted to make a story around this character that fit this character and a journey that you were putting her on? Or was it kind of multitudes, as you said, where you wanted to explore these aspects of themes that never really go away, as you said. So I feel Mm -hmm. like that's the thing with children's lit is I think people really think these themes that are spoken to in children's lit are only for children. I feel like they're processed in a way for a younger reader, 
but that anyone can gain insight from them or just be entertained. Yeah, I think it was definitely like multitudes. It was definitely wanting to talk about those experiences. Part of it was kind of being inspired by the first time I visited my family in Ghana. I wanted to write a story about a girl who gets to know her like extended family, gets to know her culture in a different way than I had experienced earlier because I only was able to visit my family in Ghana for the first time in high school. And it was such a wonderful experience. It was like meeting people who randomly knew stuff about you. And you were like, how do you know this? And it's like, oh, you're like my grandpa or whatever. And my grandma getting to see Ghana and like where I came from. It's such a different environment. And it was such like a fulfilling and wonderful environment. So I wanted to really capture that. And then the other part was definitely thinking about the idea of speaking the truth, but not being heard and not being believed. I feel like that's something Black people go through so much, whether it's talking about social justice. I still remember when I was, I think, was I in college or, you know, with Trayvon Martin being like, can nobody see what's going on here? And just like being told, oh, well, he shouldn't have done this or he shouldn't have done that. And it's like you live in this bubble of what is actually being experienced and the world around you is trying to like pretend it's not happening. So I kind of wanted to touch on both things. And I kind of used Nana's journey to like, you know, explore her character and how she would go through these experiences, but also, you know, talk about storytelling and different ways that people communicate and understand each other through storytelling and using like Ghanaian folklore to do that. And then also, you know, showcase Ghana in this way that is filled with like really a lot of love and just like joy. And so how is the process for Fibs? Because this is a graphic novel and that is a different kind of project to query and get out in the world. So how did you get to book deal and publication? Because you're the author and illustrator. I know. <laughs> so, yay, yeah. you get all the money, but also you do all the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was, it was really hard. I had like grown up making comics and stuff like that, but I kind of shelved making comics in that way. When I got older, I was like, okay, I'm going to just do prose writing because I was really inspired for like manga and like comics in that way. But I was just like, I'm not really sure how to express the stories I want to write in a comic format right now, but I do understand prose. So let me go back to prose and just like focus on that. And so for a while, I had been just focusing on prose projects. I had actually uh, created my agent, Susie Townsend, a historical fantasy. It was like a time traveling book. And she was reading that. And then DV Pitt happened. And like right before DV Pitt, I was also thinking returning to comics because it's such a space that I've always like loved. And I wanted to just be like, okay, if I could do a graphic novel of anything, what story would I want to tell? And like, what would it be like? So I kind of created that proposal and like DV Pitt was my marker. I'm someone who works very well when it's like when I have, I guess, a deadline. It really kind of invigorates me in terms of working on stuff. So I put together the proposal and then I sent it. I got some like likes on DV Pitt and then I was sharing with those agents. And then I like followed up with Susie. I was like, hey, I actually got an offer for Fibbed. And then I shared with Susie. I was like, oh, I know you're reading my novel, but I also work on a graphic novel. I got an offer for it. Would you want to take a look at that? And so she took a look at it and she really loved the idea. And so from there, because I really loved the vision she had for both my writing and for my art, I ended up going with her at New Leaf. And then from there, we kind of worked to reshape the um, proposal and then we put it on sub. And I think the interesting thing about being an illustrator on sub, it's like the art has changed so much from when I proposed it to like the final piece. And it's like, I think everyone has, whenever you look back at your work, you're just like, oh, I'm like so much better now. And being in a querying stage where you're an artist and like the progress of your art style is literally changing as the book is being read by other people. It's like, oh, oh no, like I should have spent more time showcasing this in the art. And then so my editor, Ruth, Ruda Rimas, she ended up 
really loving the project, but she had some like questions in terms of developing the story. So we had a meeting and like, she loved the art. She loved the concept and like working with her has been so great because she helped me build out more of what my vision was. It's like even the story of Nana and her relationship with her grandmother, that's something that wasn't in the original proposal. It was just like this adventure story about Nana who always tells the truth, but never is believed. And then she goes to Ghana and then this corporation is stealing magic from the forest. She meets Anansi, who is this character in Ghanaian and African folklore, who is basically, he's a trickster spider and he always kind of outwits other people. And he's kind of an anti-hero. So she meets Anansi. She has to team up with him to save the forest. And then when I was talking to my editor, she was like, you know, Nana's grandma is so important to like being the only person who fully is trying to understand her stories and things like that. Would you be interested in like pulling that out more? So that was something that was really came during the publication process that wasn't there in the proposal. So it's been really nice seeing how the story has developed from the beginning to the end. And as an artist, I'm just like, there's like one page that's still the same from when it was like initial, like I think like 2019, there's one like one spread. It's when Nana meets Anansi in the forest for the first time. It's still the same, but I even had made a different version of that in the proposal. And like my pride and joy is just looking at the comparison and be like, look how much my art has improved in that spread. It was a really intensive, but like really labor of love kind of project. And then I think like the other piece was the lettering and like the bubbling, which is something when it comes to comics, there can be different teams to do that, or it can just be one person. So I kind of did literally every stage. I sketched all the pages. I did all the inking. I did all the lettering and bubbling as my first graphic novel. Even now I'm just like, oh, okay, this is how I do it differently. But I think I'm really happy with how it turned out. It's been really great seeing other people's reception for it because it's like, you know, I wanted to just write, obviously I wanted to write about these deeper themes, but at the end of the day, I wanted to write a story about family and like just feeling the love of your community. And I think that there's so many readers who've been like really feeling that they were happy and got those good emotions from reading the story. That was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot of good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been editing? As an editor or the yeah. book? I, yeah. So here. even before I started this book, my first job in publishing was in 2017. And I started working on this in 2019. So I like started as an assistant. Now I'm an associate editor at a big five. Were you ever planning to do the formal query thing? Or you're just like, DV Pit, why not? I had been doing the querying since high school. So it's something, it was like, when I found out how books were made, I was like, oh, I'm a creative. Even before, like when I was younger, I didn't know that people wrote books. I didn't know that there were like teams who made books. I just thought the bookseller or librarian was like, hmm, what story do people want to hear today? And then they just use a spell. And then this is the book. I didn't even know there were authors. I still remember the first time I figured out that authors existed. I like finished a book. And for some reason, I don't know why I never did this, but I would never look at the flap. I would just finish the book. And then I'm like, I'm done. But I like looked at the back flap and I saw an image. I was like, who is this? And then I'm like, this person wrote this. It was like so shocking to me. But it was also inspiring. I was like, oh, people actually write these stories. Maybe I can do that because I was always making comics with my siblings and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, well, maybe the stories I can write can also be books too. Would you recommend DV Pit to yeah, I mean, I need to work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what's so funny? Because Susie and I started working together because, you know, I had cold created her and then I sent her my graphic novel. And I thought DV Pit was really incredible because, you know, you create such an incredible community from even participating in it. And then you get to meet so many authors. This is for different books that I had pitched because I, I queried for the first DV Pit and it was, I forgot what the book was. It's been a hot minute. It was like a fantasy. And 
during that process, I got to connect with an author who helps me with like my DV Pit pitch. So just the experience of being a part of DV Pit was so incredible. And it also helped me, you know, as a creator in terms of like, how do I pitch my book? How do I find community? So I definitely would recommend it. I think it's such a great community. It's such a great event that Beth Phelan created and there's so many people working with it. Definitely something I would recommend. Do you go on it as an editor? I, okay, so I think... Here's the thing, because it's removed, it's like, because I know editors do participate, but it's the most immediate thing is agents that work with the authors. And then from there, I have actually participated as an um, an editor, but I don't think I've seen any projects from it because I'm kind of newer. So I don't know if I'm on people's subs lists, but I have participated in it and I've seen and definitely people in-house do participate in it. The reason why I'm like having an online persona when you do both, you work in an industry and also create, I feel like it's kind of a little bit jarring. Sometimes I'm like, I feel like I have to keep it separate in a way because I love shouting out about all the books I love reading, all the great writer friends I have on like my personal page. And then I'm like, I also want to shout out the books of the authors I work with. That is still something I'm still trying to figure out in terms of how active am I on my editor platform versus my author platform. I even created like a new Twitter for it. That's why I'm not as online as an editor because I'm just like, it might just be easier to keep it a little bit separate. Sometimes I'm like, it, it might be harder to just be doing both of them online because it's sometimes a lot of the context is missing if you don't know the experience of like working on a book versus if you don't know the creative side of reading a book too. So that makes it always harder and engaging with people. That's another thing. It's like something I didn't know before I joined the industry was just like, when do editors read? I just thought editors read books and like, yeah, I like this. We're making it. But there's meetings and there's launches and there's just so much. And then the kind of new expectation of editors being online and always being online, always engaging, always doing the work outside of work hours in that way. That's kind of where I'm just, hmm, it's a lot. It is. It is. And sometimes it's kind of that situation of, I don't want to talk about my job right now. <laughs> I don't want to engage with anybody about my job. Yeah. So how have you, now that you're a published author, yay, yay. how has that been in terms of even engaging with people outside of work? Because I feel like, I mean, you and I are not being published by our respective house where we work. Yeah. Whether that was purposeful or not, I don't know. Going back to my question, how has that been is now I'm creator now it's I have been, to go back to work yeah be editor <laughs> but still may have some creator stuff that I need to do I was also like because like I was saying before keeping things separate in my head has always been helpful to me and like I love the team I work with and they're so incredible so it's like if I didn't want things to be separate I would love to work with that team but I know some other people do I know there's some authors who publish from the some author editors who publish from their, their same house personally to me I just always need something separate in my head I just need things in different cups so it's just like I'm working from nine to five I clock out and then I can do my creative stuff instead of always feeling kind of like overlapping. So to me, it's been a good experience, especially because in terms of when you work multiple jobs and you create two, it's always, we all have the same 24 hours in a day, but you have to carve out different times in your day, whether it's to like financially support yourself, whether it's just to like do something for fun or, and also have a personal life. And I think carving out that time, I used to like commute and the commute would be the buffer or like to me, the weekends is when I do most of my creative work where it's like after work hours, that's when I'm doing creative stuff. But also it's okay. I finish work. I eat lunch. I relax for a little bit and then eight to 10, I'm working on like book projects. So that's definitely a hustle because I've always had many interests. So I'm just like, I would love to just not have to hustle, but also it's like, you know, you need to support yourself. And also you actually really 
love doing these projects. So it's been a balance, but it's been good. I think during the pandemic, when everyone was shut down and all those changing environments, it's been hard. But also like sometimes I'm just like, as someone who, as a Black person, there's always something going on in terms of our community. I think that was to me like the biggest shift is just summer of 2020 when everyone was finally talking about the issue of Black Lives Matter and just like the social and racial injustice happening. And it's like, oh, you guys are finally understanding what it means to have to compartmentalize your life. So I think it's kind of a relief to feel like you can be your authentic self because sometimes you don't get that opportunity. And I've been lucky enough to always have been having that opportunity. I'm someone like, I'd rather not be in a space if I know that I can't be my full self than have to like pretend. So that's always been something I've been like really active about. And I've been lucky to be able to always be myself in those spaces. But everyone brings a different piece of themselves to what they do in every field. And so just kind of navigating that has been harder. I feel like to me, the hardest part isn't necessarily doing the work. It's just being an author and then being like, okay, well, I put my book out. But there's a whole history of how people talk about my people and my culture that I have to work against and re-educate, break down those barriers in a way. And it's like you find it in different experiences and different pieces of that. It's like as I'm doing my art, what type of feedback am I getting? Are they able to bring a richness to the feedback in the art or do I have to like educate in this way? So I think the hardest part is just contending with all of those pieces, because sometimes I'm just like, what is it like being a creator and just like not feeling that way? But I, I really appreciate being who I am and having all the experiences I have, because I think it has defined me in a way that I just feel really happy about. I think they have helped, you know, make me who I am. And I think I wouldn't have it any other way. I also really respect your time management. It's a lot of Google tasks. Like I have whole Google task sheets. It's like every page that I have to draw is its own Google task and it's put on my calendar at different times. So I get the validation of clicking. I did this, but it takes a long time to organize it. <laughs> Whoa, that's also very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like, like that for novels. <laughs> oh, I could only imagine. I had to whittle my stuff down smaller in my life mm -hmm. to be manageable. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually very true. I think because I went to art school, we had this assignment once where the teacher gave us a, a pen and she said the assignment is to use all the ink in the pen. That's the only thing you'll be graded on. She gave us like three months to do it. And I was like, oh, we have three months. I'm chill. And the first day I like drew and then I just never touched it again before the day the assignment was due. And I was like, oh my God, I have to use all this ink before like the three hours before this class happens. And I think that's that was a lesson I learned. Even if you do one line a day, that is going to build to the final piece. So you don't have to feel that rushed feeling. So like even the fact that you edit for like 20 minutes a day or do something, it does add up. And that's like, it's relieving to know that because if, you know what, you don't have to put so much pressure on spending all these hours on it. But sometimes things get moved or sometimes it's just like, I don't have the energy for this. So those are also part of it. Yeah, so true. That's such a great example too, because I remember in my late 20s, early 30s, spending a full day, sometimes not even getting out of my pajamas, writing. Wow. And they're just doing that thing where you like get up, get snacks all the time, but you're not really <laughs> eating a meal. And I'm just like, I can't do that anymore. And maybe it's pandemic slash being an acquisitions editor where you're just like in meetings so much, as you know, mm -hmm. especially these meetings are in Zoom, not necessarily you going from a room to a room to a room. Yeah. Um, needing to go out, 
just et cetera, et cetera, just low energy. It's just like the idea of sitting for hours writing is not appealing to me. Yeah. At a computer. It's fine on my couch though. <laughs> like when I have the really cushiony laptop thing for mm-hmm. my, the holder for my laptop, I can do that on my couch, but just something now that I have an office at, at my apartment, it's like, nope, I won't go into that office. That's work. <laughs> and I have to edit my podcast in here because this is where like the big computer is. And so sometimes I'm like, nope, that's the work there's nope. And so I'll just take my laptop to my reading chair and be like, I can do this. And then I do the Pomodoro thing now where I oh, sit yeah. and log for an hour and a half. And I just know, okay, in 90 minutes, this will tell me. And then I take an half hour break and then come back for 90 minutes. And that's how I finished massive revisions on my book was doing that on weekends. But something about coming to a work desk, I think something in my mind recognized that during the pandemic and in my new apartment was you need an office. And then you, when you write, you need to go to your reading chair or your couch because you can't disassociate anymore. You have an office in your home now. You gotta not do that. The lines are blurred now to the point where you do need to make these, I think, as for us as creators. Yeah, I totally agree. And even it just brings like being in that different space, like you were saying, brings a different mindset to it. And it's also a different type of physicality because that's something I kind of like as a writer, when we're writing prose, it's our wrist that we're kind of like at our back, right? When I'm illustrating, it's also very physical too, in a different way. So finding a comfortable space, sometimes like the idea of drawing for like, eight hours, that takes a physical toll on your body too, if you're doing that every weekend. So even just breaking up smaller can just help you in terms of keeping yourself healthy so that you can keep creating and don't overload yourself. Yeah. And so you're doing more books. Are you doing more graphic novels? I know one is a YA novel, is it not? Yeah. So I have mm-hmm. another gra- graphic novel coming from Razorbill that hasn't been announced. And the other book is a YA graphic novel that's been announced. It's coming from Delacour. It's about Three girls who are excited about their senior trip because, you know, they're going to spend it with their friends and their boyfriend. But then they find out that they're all dating the same guy. And during their senior trip, he goes missing and they are accused of being responsible. So they kind of have to figure out the mystery of what happened to him. So that's the second book project that's in the works. With Delacorte, you mean? The heart, yes. It's yeah, heart shaped Lies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I should mention the title. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, no worries. Heart Shaped Lies, everybody. And I can only imagine, again, being author and illustrator, how much that is on it. Like getting final art is no small feat. So congratulations because it's a very beautiful, it's a very (laughs) vibrant book. I love how they included patterns and the claw, not just the spine, but in like kind of end papers and stuff like that. So, you know, and I'm just really into graphic novels because I think it's been harder for me to read in the print pandemics, especially when Elizabeth's like, I have a graphic novel. I was like, send it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'll read it. It makes, you happy. it makes you happy, but it's also like, because you also know this, it's 2019 to 2022. And then you're like, I read this in like two hours. And you're like, you know you. how much time my hands exactly. hurt. Yeah, exactly. I felt every brush oh, of hair. Yeah. And, but it's, it's great. Yeah, it's fine. I always talk about Jacqueline Woodson's quote when she was at an event and she said, people come up to her and say, I read brown girl dreaming in like an hour and she's like go back and read it again it took me five years to write 
<laughs> that's incredible. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's that's real. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's real. So, and it's a compliment to someone ingested your work so quickly, but you're like, good God, <laughs> savor it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also kind of why I don't really con- consider Fib to crash because I've been working on it since 2019. So like to mm. me, I've had the time to sit with it. But then at the end, it's like the last final run was a marathon. So that's like the part that was probably like a crash. But I, I was lucky to have mm. um, editorial staff, like my editor and like the team, the production mm. team who were able to like give me new deadlines. Where I'm like, hey, these take a lot of pieces in the comics industry. They have different people writing and lettering and all that stuff. And I think that's something like publishing I incorporate more because graphic novels are so intensive. As someone who do- both does prose and as someone who illustrates, it's drawing a scene with words is not the same labor as painting out each leaf. You can say there's 10 leaves in like prose, and then you have to like, physically do the act of putting all those details on the 10 leaves. So the book is seven pages, panels per page in some scenes. So it's like every panel is an art piece, right? So it's like doing that for 250 pages is really intensive oh labor. And then God, doing the lettering on top of that, all that stuff. So. Oh my God. Hey, you're Anytime. not compensated enough. <laughs> we, I, like, I'm not saying I know how much people are getting paid, mm-hmm. but just for what you told me, I'm like, it's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes you can even see, like, you don't need to, like, Publishing Paid Me did such a great job talking about how creators from marginalized backgrounds and identities aren't getting compensated for their work in comparison to kind of the white counterparts. And I think that there definitely needs to be more conversations as, like, the publishing industry is trying to do more graphic novels and bring in more authors from different identities. Okay, you have a team that this author is also doing kind of the history work of like talking to your copy editors and them about like, okay, you don't have someone to copy edit this history of this culture. I'll do that extra research. It's like, are you compensating them for all that extra work? Whereas, you know, white authors don't have to do that. I mean, you would hope that they put in that research too, but it's like, it's different questions. It's like, it's not necessarily an author's expertise to know what is the grammatical spelling of this really specific word in a different language. That's something you would say like, oh, the copy editor will look into like the the dictionary and like find all that information mm-hmm. bring that mm-hmm. set that like experience to how they make the book and you aren't having that at every level for when books by authors of color books by authors of different backgrounds are publishing their stories and right. and you're also not compensating them so it's like so many layers that i don't think are being considered enough no not at all i do straight prose okay. i had to spend like over two thousand dollars on readers for a book because I have different identities and experiences Mm -hmm. that I wanted to really be conscious of the fact that I am not Mm -hmm. um, and that was my money Mm -hmm. I remember they were like we have a modest budget for that and I'm like you have a modest budget okay oh wow Like, yeah, I have a modest budget. Okay, well, and I hired five different people, and wow. that was over two thousand dollars. That I can write off my taxes, obviously. Mm-hmm. But oh boy, but it's also point. yeah, it's like, like I don't know how the- many people are doing that. I think a lot of people, even though mm-hmm. this is a big conversation that's been happening for years, and I've been hired as a reader also for quote unquote the Black experience or the Black American experience, which is not monolithic, but that's another episode. 
<laughs> is the pay is crap for that. Yeah. And and I didn't want to pay people crap. I wanted to pay people what they felt they deserved for what they were providing. And they give they give budgets for like getting permissions and like all of those stuff. And those are inherent in contracts. So it's I think publishing mm-hmm. needs to really move forward in terms of if you're asking an author. And the great thing about my experience as an editor is the houses I've worked for have done that. They've had had mm-hmm. budgets. But that's also that was a conversation that happened in multiple levels before that happened. And I think Mm -hmm. the conversation still needs to be happening so that those changes are kind of embedded in how books are being made. Absolutely. Slow and steady. Yes. (laughs) Very slow, though. Very slow. (laughs) You said it. (laughs) I thought it. You said it. Uh, Elizabeth, congrats Thank you so, much. so much on Fib. It really is a beautiful, vibrant, sweet book. A lot. And she put so much work into it, y'all. So definitely get this for your libraries, your your shelves, all that good stuff. And so how can people kind of learn more about your work, your current book, your upcoming books? Are you on the socials? I am. I'm just going to give my website. So mm-hmm. my website is Elizabeth Ajima. .com and like that has all my links to like my social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all of that at once a day. O N C E A D D A I. But yeah, you can find me on my website and you can find me on those platforms and I like to do art videos and talk about the shows and books I'm reading and watching and stuff like that. Yay! Elizabeth Adjamine, E L I Z A B E T H A G Y E. M-A-N-G. Thanks, Jen. My first name and my last name are always so long. So like whenever I would have to do the SATs, one letter was going to be missing. Really? <laughs> so, yes. space. I never have any space. So I'm just like always like, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of letters here. <laughs> they would have shortened your name. <laughs> you mean Liz? <laughs> You're like, no. <laughs> just, you know, I do go by Liz, but like, it's just another boxing things. When I hear Elizabeth, I'm get in trouble. It's usually my parents are like oh. Elizabeth, so I'm like, okay, I have to be pristine. So when people call me Elizabeth, I'm like, I'm being professional now. But oh, it's okay. call me Liz. Okay, cool. Yeah, I go by Jennifer at work. I mean, mm-hmm. you could call me either. My website's my full name. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's not Jen Baker. Mm-hmm. So these are, the, these are the things we have to think about. Like, are you Jen or Jennifer? Are you Elizabeth or you Liz? Yeah. What, what do you go by? <laughs> what do we call you? <laughs> Thank you again, Elizabeth Edgemine, for being on. Please get Fib, this wonderful graphic novel that is out now. And appreciate Elizabeth's hard work because she <laughs> finished this in February. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And thank y'all for listening. Once again, this is the Minorities in Publishing podcast, which you can find on Tumblr and Twitter and wherever you listen to podcasts, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take care and be safe, everybody.